I was thinking today as uh, we start, I was thinking of sweet spots. And I wasn't sure if anybody would understand sweet spots outside of sports. We all have sweet spots in life where we would like to live, where we'd like to exist. In sports, there's a sweet spot on the bat where you want to hit the ball. In tennis, where you want to hit it to get the maximum velocity and spin and control and everything else. There's even a sweet spot in bowling that you need to hit in order to get a strike. So we begin today in a new, uh, not an entirely new series, but an answer to the series that we've been going through, through Revelation 13. Because when you end Revelation 13, it's pretty bleak. You have the whole world uh, wondering after a beast. You have a whole world worshiping a, a, a false church, if you will. It's not very good news as this church gains power and uh, forces people to worship. Those who don't worship the beast are uh, killed, they're persecuted, they're um, imprisoned, they're tortured. It's not very pretty. But what's great about Revelation is that as you move from Revelation 13 to Revelation 14, we get to hit two Adventist sweet spots. And the first Adventist sweet spot that we hit that I'd like to start with is the church at Laodicea. Now, the reason that it's an Adventist sweet spot is that when you ask most Seventh-day Adventists who the church is Laodicea, who the church in Laodicea is, we know the answer, don't we? It's us. And so it's a sweet spot always for us Seventh-day Adventists to know the answer to something. We love knowing the answer. So it shouldn't be sweet that we are allowed to see it, should it? No, but it is sweet that we know who we are. You know, and the only way to actually face a problem is to admit that we have one. And the church allowed to see is claiming to be of the Lamb. As, as, as I said, we, we uh, have this choice living in the end time. Everybody does. It's not the world against the church. It's two churches fighting for the world's worship. And there's only two. The church of the beast and the church of the lamb that was slain. And Laodicea claims to be a church of the lamb that was slain. But what's interesting about Laodicea is that the lamb that is slain is locked out of the church, knocking to get in. And why is he out there? Because they don't need him. We don't need him. We think that we actually have all of our needs fulfilled. Jesus says of the church at Laodicea, you claim to be rich and have need of nothing. So if we need nothing, that includes that we don't need him, which is why we've locked him out. And he knocks on the door. Knocking on the door of a church that claims to be his church. And they especially don't need, we especially don't need, if we have no need, of what he has to offer. And what's interesting is his prescription. His prescription is gold refined in the fire. Laodicea has plenty of gold. It's just that it isn't the gold that is refined in the fire. Of the 15 to 18 times that gold is used in all of Scripture in the, in the New Testament, there's only one time where it's used as a metaphor. The rest of the time, it's referred to as gold. Two times. It's when Peter says that our testimony from Christ, our grace from Christ, is worth more than all gold. And the other is right here. This isn't real gold. Laodicea doesn't need real gold. Jesus says what Laodicea needs is the gold of the gospel, the gold of his testimony, that which outweighs all gold in the world. The other thing he has for them is white robes so that he says, well, I may clothe you. Not a substitute for righteousness. Not to be on the inside of the door and thinking that we, we know more, that, that, that we have more, that we have more truth than somebody else, which makes us better Right day to worship, right way to live, right way to eat, not to eat. Not a substitute for righteousness, but the righteousness that only is his righteousness. Amen. Clothing, robes, actually his robe. If you believe 
that Jesus died for your sins. If you believe, then that faith is your ticket to being cleansed from all unrighteousness and to actually be able to walk around in his righteousness. Not some poor substitute. Not the substitute that the Church of the Beast offers. But be able to walk around in his righteousness. By faith. The last thing he offers Laodicea is ISAF. Because they truly are blind, aren't we? If we believe that, that our substitute for righteousness and that our gold is going to get us somewhere, then we truly are blind. We don't see who we are. The eye salve is put on, he said, so that you all can recognize that you are poor, miserable, pitiable, wretched, blind, and naked. And once we see that, then we have only one choice is to go to the only one who can do something about it. So maybe Laodicea gets just desperate enough, just cold enough to walk over and unlock the door and let him in. I speculated this whole series, what would happen if we let him in? So I change now speeds in this series. I change it because... Laodicea's only hope is to let him in. Remember, Laodicea is one of two, the only church, the only church in the seven churches that gets no positive accolades from Jesus. Even Thyatira, who's in the, the midst of the full worship of the first beast, gets something said about them. There is a remnant even in Thyatira. There are a few who have not soiled their robes. Laodicea gets no such accolades. He has nothing good to say about Laodicea. But Laodicea gets the greatest reward. If you open the door, I will come in and I will sit with you. Laodicea actually gets the invite to sit with him. And where is he right now? at the throne of his father, seated in heavenly places. If Laodicea would just let him in, we could be sitting there. As a matter of fact, if we believe, if we have the faith, if we're wearing the robe that, that he has asked for, right now we are sitting there with him. In a way, we're not even here spiritually. It's a real bummer to have to be here physically. But in a way, we're not even here spiritually. Paul tells us in Ephesians, he tells us in Colossians, he tells us in Romans, that when Jesus died for our sins, we died with him. When he was resurrected, we were resurrected. And when he was taken and ascended to the Father to sit at the right hand of the Father, we were taken to sit at the right hand of the Father. So what would happen if Laodicea would let him in? It's our only hope. The lousiest church gets the greatest reward to be with him. We're told when we started the last series about the, this war with the beast, the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So again, the setting for Revelation 14 is following Re Revelation 15. We are in the last days of earth's history and the dragon is angry and making war with the children of the woman. The children, the, one, the, the, the few children left who have not soiled their robes. There's always been a remnant. Even in the midst, in the height, and the power of the beast. And as we see the second beast rise to power the same way that the first one did, there are still a few. And by the way, it can be more than a few. If, Rem, if Laodicea opens the door and lets him in, then hopefully maybe one day the remnant becomes the majority. Wouldn't that be great? Revelation 13 is the dragon's part in this war, and we know what he did. He called up two beasts because he wasn't strong enough. He got cast out of heaven because he wasn't strong enough. So he calls up two beasts. Now you have the dragon and the beast of the sea and the beast of the land, a counterfeit trinity, if you will, to deceive the world uh, and get them to persecute the woman, to make them worship him 
rather than the God and the Lamb that was slain. Revelation 14, then, is the counter to the false trinity. Revelation 14 is the remnant's response to the church of the beast battle. The dragon threatens with a threefold deception, a dragon and two beasts over the history of the Christian church. The remnant's fight is a threefold message unto all the world. That's what the three angels' message is. And now we come to the second Adventist sweet spot. I'm not sure that there's a more sweeter, or a more sweeter, a sweeter spot for Adventists than the three angels' message. Y'all got a warm and fuzzy feeling as soon as I said it, right? The three angels' message. And that's where we start today. Because I sure, after spending all the time trying to understand and recognize the way that the beast operates, I am sure glad that God already had a plan in place to counter that counterfeit. And guess what? We're it. Laodicea is it if Laodicea opens the door. So we'll begin today in Revelation 14 at first by identifying this remnant. In Revelation 13, the uh, the first five verses are all about just identifying and describing who they are. The messages that they have or are given by the three angels is in verses 6 to 13. And from 13 to the rest of the chapter is the results of the mission of the proclaiming of the three angels' message. So we begin in in verse 1. I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him... 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. This number 144,000 describes God's end time people as to who will stand in the end. Who is it that stands in the end time? Who is the remnant that has decided not to spoil their robes, to wear the robes, to let Jesus in and to wear what he has for us? Accept his forgiveness, accept his grace, accept being cleansed all of our unrighteousness and to be able to live by faith. That's these, because they're standing with him. They're standing on Mount Zion. Our background text, because of how it's mentioned, is Joel 2.32. The prophet says to Israel, it'll come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the name The 144,000 stand next to the lamb and they have the name of his father on their foreheads, don't they? So Joel 2.32 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be delivered. And when it was time to be delivered in Israel's day, you were delivered to Mount Zion. That mount that Jerusalem happens to be built on. There will be those who escape. That's where those who escape the battle, escape the war from enemies, that's where they escape too. This is clearly, I would say, the background text for 14.1. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that. That the remnant is known as survivors. After the beast has his way, after both beasts have their way, remnant is described as a survivor. Not using the power and everything and the temptation to use the beast power, no. But to be able to survive, to be able to love as the lamb loves while the whole world wonders after the beast and limits love, conditions love, and conditions grace. So in 14.1, it is the 144,000. I truly believe that every indication is that this 144,000 is the remnant that the dragon is making war with back in chapter 12, verse 17. Remember that the dragon went off to make war with the children of the woman. They're it. So how many have a love-hate relationship as I do with the number 144,000? I do, okay? I do, 
because the number 144,000 is littered with controversy. It has controversy all over it. So let me deal with the number 144,000 first because it only, it only appears twice in all the Bible and this one here and then where Grady read us from in chapter seven. Chapter seven helps us to deal with the number 144,000. What is the greatest controversy about the number 144,000? Is it what? Is it literal? In other words, do we really believe that only 144,000 people would be the part of that last generation? No, we don't. But there are many who do. And the, and the war has, has been fought. I've been approached by people every time that I preach this. I still get approached by people insisting that it has to be a literal number. Hear me out. Let's see what Revelation can give us. Because I believe that Revelation gives us all the indication that we need that this number can't be literal. And it was never meant to be indicated as literal. Were they literal or symbolic? Let me ask you this. Was the woman literal or symbolic? Symbolic. So if you look at the chapters that are being dealt with, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, even sitting in the midst of those books, all of those books were what? They were symbolic. The woman, the dragon. Was he a literal dragon? Who is the dragon? Were the beasts literal? Or symbols? Symbols. He didn't see, he didn't see 2,000 years of history of the church, did he? He saw a beast rising up out of the sea. He didn't even see that, that uh, the people that the sea indicates. In prophetic language, sea and waters are always what? Do you know why? Because water is a symbol. So even its location Revelation 14 sits in the midst of the most symbolic chapters in all of Revelation. Chapter 7, 4, he says, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. So in chapter 7, this is from the scripture reading that, that uh, Grady read to us. We started in, in chapter 9, we're talking about those that, that were... Um, uh, these, these people, these saved people. And in chapter seven, they are described as 12,000 descendants from the literal tribes of Israel. The next five verses are all about naming the tribes and how many come from them. Okay? I'll, I'll save you some time. Spoiler alert. It's 12,000 from each tribe. So 12,000 times 12,000 equals what? 144,000. So the people that tell me that it's a literal number use that and say it has to be a literal number because it sounds so what? It sounds so literal. It's math. Look at the list first of all though. According to Revelation 7, these are the tribes. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. First of all, let me tell you this. The 12 tribes of Israel don't exist anymore in a literal sense. And in Jesus' day, in John's day, they didn't exist in any real literal sense either. There might be a few today and maybe a few more as DNA uh, proves to be a more a reliable and accessible way to be able to find where we come from, but there are very, very few who can trace their descent back beyond the Middle Ages. Most people of Jewish descent today can only trace their lineage back to the Middle Ages. There's only one name that really truly exists, and the name is Cohen, the name for priest. But even the name Cohen doesn't guarantee that you have Jewish ancestors that go all the way back to the Levitical priesthood. You with me? There are very few. And we know that in Jesus' day, they're literally, the 12 tribes did not exist because the 10 refer to all of the tribes in the north who were captured by the Assyrians 2,700 years ago. And what happened to them? Did they come back 
and resettle after the Assyrian captivity? No, they scattered. And they assimilated into every Middle Eastern country at the time. They never came back. The Samaritans are the only ones, they're the only ones that exist from the 12 tribes of Israel. They've been gone for 2,700 years. They don't exist in a literal sense. This list right here is different from any known list that we have in the entire Bible. It's wrong. Some are missing, some are added. I'll start with Manasseh and Joseph. Was there a tribe of Joseph? No, not even all the way back to when Jacob first blesses his sons, there was no tribe of Joseph. Even back when he blessed his sons, he blessed, his, he blessed Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. When Moses allotted the land and Joshua gave it out, there was no tribe of Joseph, it was given to him, them the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob's favorite son, even though he wasn't the firstborn son, got the firstborn's double portion of the inheritance. Joseph was never a tribe. And the tribe that was, one of the tribes that was to take his place is not on this list. Manasseh, I mean Manasseh is on the list, Ephraim is not. Neither is Dan. No such literal list like this exists anywhere else. Twelve tribes were probably, as I said, impossible to come up with even in his day. So if it's a literal number, it can't come from this list because this list is far from literal. So just to point out, and I hate to disappoint you, but Revelation, for the most part, is a symbolic book. All of it. I'm not saying that there aren't any literal parts, there are a few, but by the way, John will give you an indicator when he wants you to take it literally. Which is why there are not that many indicators in the book of Revelation. It is symbolic. See, and I think that one of the ways that I think that the beast has become very effective in his theology is trying to convince people that these things that are seen in Revelation are literal because when we can see them as literal, then we can turn the dragon into a godlike figure. And we can attribute emotions and selfishness and pettiness to him that we wouldn't be able to ever attribute to the church, uh, attribute to the lamb that was slain. We like the idea of God himself arising in the end and literally wiping out his enemies in a physical war. If you want to take Revelation literally, then that's the picture of God we have to go forward with. How many are comfortable with that? And when it comes comes to these, we're always, ever ever since the number was uttered, 144,000, the church has looked for some way to be able to limit the number of people that belong on that mountain. 144,000, that's a pretty good group to be a part of. That's a pretty good group in 2,000 years of history. That's an elite group right there. Who doesn't wanna be a member of that? And we have to admit that one of the reasons we wanna be a member of it is because there are so many people who aren't. The 144,000 has been used to convince Christians that the Jews are excluded from this, has been used to tell people that if you don't belong to my church, you're excluded from this. So let me help you with John's indication here then. Look what he says. He says, after this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count. What? What did he just say? Now, I know it would take a while, but you and I can count 144,000, can't we? It may take us a while, but we could do it. There probably isn't anybody in here who couldn't do it. University of Michigan Stadium, packed, holds 102,000. There, you're three quarters done when you walk into that stadium and count everybody. All you have to do is stand at the gates and then let half back in and you're done. 
Literally, right? But what did he just say right there? I looked and saw a number, how many could count? No one. Including you smart aleck mathematicians. Right? No counting. What do they represent? Where do they come from? Every tribe. Every nation. Every kindred. Every tongue. Who's included in this group? Everyone. 144,000, literally, it excludes so many of those because the beast wants us to. They're dressed in white. They have palm branches. Apparently, they're in heaven. See, because they are, John is seeing, who is John seeing here? I see a number that no one can count. Okay, they come from all over. Who's he seeing right now? He's seeing us. He's seeing us. And he's seeing beyond us. He's seeing everybody who decided not to worship the beast. He's seeing everybody who decided to put their faith in the lamb that was slain. Which means at that picture right there, we were in that picture somewhere. And everybody who's going to be after us until he comes. That's why it's a great number that how many can count? That no one can count. The group in, uh, in, in Revelation uh, 7 uh, before this, the group before this, no palms, no palm fronds, no robes, just a number. From where? From all the tribes of Israel. They're, they're on earth. So what's interesting is John uses a literary technique here to prove to us that this can't be a literal number. And it's based on what he hears and what he sees. What he hears and what he sees. First time he does it is back in chapter five. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. This is the throne room scene. This is before the seven seals. Nobody is found worthy to open the seals, right? Nobody is found worthy. And John begins to weep. And, and, and the angel says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with four living creatures, the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out unto all the earth. Behold, he hears a what? He hears about a lion from the tribe of Judah. That's what the angel says to him. But when he turns, what does he see? He sees a lamb as if was slain. What he hears is behold the lion. What he sees is a lamb that was slain. Are the lion and the lamb the same person? He just used two different symbols to, to show us the same person, right? I thank the Lord that he isn't a literal lion because that would be it, right? And he's a literal lion and he's a literal what? Lamb. By the way, it perfectly sums him up. He has all the power and the might and the authority of a lion, but decides like a lamb to send himself to the slaughter. He abdicates his authority and power as a lion in order to become slain like a what? Like a lamb. So it's one of John's tricks. What he hears and what he sees. One of the seven angels in 17.1, one of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls came and spoke to me saying, come here, I'll show you this from last week, just last week. The judgment of the great harlot who sits on many what? On many waters. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. This is how I concluded last week. Remember, this was our series before. The woman goes into the wilderness. The church of Christ comes out the, uh, controlling the beast. This is what she's writing. So look, come here. I'll show you the great harlot who sits on what? On many waters. And when he sees her, he sees her sitting on what? 
a scarlet beast. The beast and the waters, are they the same thing? Yes, they are. Two completely different symbols. The waters are all the people that make up the church of the beast. Two symbols, same thing, that have almost nothing to do with each other. I'll show you the great harlot who sits on many waters, and then I see a woman sitting on a beast. One more real quick, Revelation 1. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, John says, and I heard behind me a loud voice, and the voice sounds like what? The sound of a trumpet. I was in the spirit, and then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I see seven gold lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a what? Like a son of man. I heard a voice, and he turns expecting to see somebody playing a trumpet. But what does he see? He sees Jesus. Are they the same? Two symbols, one person. So now we come back to, we come back to ours. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. But after this I looked and there was what? There was a great multitude that how many could count? That no one could count. I hear the number, 144,000, but I look and there's what? A multitude that no one could count. What he sees and what he hears is different. The number has to be symbolic. It can't be both. Why? Why 144,000? In scripture, in prophecy, and especially in all of scripture, there are only two numbers that are significant, that, that, well, maybe not only, but the two most significant, what you would call God numbers, in other words, whole numbers, numbers that cannot be added to except by God, are the number seven and the numbers 12. Seven refers to his power as creator. All the work that he had to do, he did it for how many days? At seven. Yes, he did work on the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath itself, right? The seventh day was a creation. He created Sabbath. He created rest. Was there anything to add? I know a lot of people say they were in the eighth day. Okay, it's, it's, it's a funny meme, but it's blasphemy, okay? And then the number 12. The number 12 has to do with all the people who claim to be his people. In the Hebrew scriptures, in what is referred to as the Old Testament, all of God's people lived in how many tribes? In 12, 13 actually, but we counted as 12 because Levi didn't have an inheritance, right? 12 tribes. When Jesus came, and wanted to, to begin at least with all of his disciples, all of the people that would follow him, he chose how many? He chose 12. Later on in Revelation, when you look at the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem, the foundation stones are 12, and above are the tribes, and below are the disciples. It means that all God's people throughout all biblical history, from the garden all the way to the second coming and after, are symbolized by 12. If 12 is all of God's people, how much more is 12 times 12 times 1,000? What is John trying to get across to us that when we get there there will be no one left out who was not supposed to be there it's a whole number and it's only up to who it's only up to him he decides and he's decided to make it available to anyone who would have faith in him 144,000 is a way of saying all God's people, the whole number of peoples. You thought 12 was a lot? How about 144,000? That's what he's saying. By the way, at the throne, 24 elders, they're humans. Why 24? They represent us. The elders around the throne praising God right now, been praising the, the, the lamb ever since he ascended back to heaven. 
is humanity. It's us. We are represented in the very throne room of God. Why? Because Jesus promised us if we believe in him, we will be with him. 24 elders, 12 and 12, it represents all of humanity. We're there. Two sets of people. In Revelation 13, the whole world wanders after the beast. And they receive what? They receive a mark. Revelation 14, a number no one can count, receives what? Receives a seal. His name on their forehead means that they're completely committed. They're completely committed to these things. Completely committed to who? To him. There are no nominal followers of the lamb. See, the thing about the beast is that I can pretend to follow the lamb when I follow the beast. See, the reason he's so effective as a God is that he says, yes, you can be Christ-like when you want to, and you can be dragon-like when you want to. Who wouldn't want to worship a God like that? We could walk around, if we want to, with stuff in our pocket, like uh, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and take it out on everybody because it's right here, it's in God's word. Look at me, I'm a follower of God. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, how about you turn the other cheek? And we say, okay, that that sounds good until it comes time to do it. Then all of a sudden we start to walk and say, well, I think he was speaking metaphorically. That's something that somebody with the mark of the beast can do. They can walk away from the lamb when they want to. This 144,000, they don't walk away. They're committed. That's why it's written in their forehead. They're committed. The three angels is for all. So now we come Fast forward now, now that we've identified the, the, uh, the 144,000, I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him, 144,000, having his name in the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. There you go again, three symbols, one voice, right? He's having a hard time describing the voice. They all sound pretty pleasant. Maybe even the thunder does. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one can learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been purchased from the earth. He takes us back, he alludes then to chapters four and five, when all of the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures and all of heaven have been singing that song. It says no one could learn. It's a song of Moses. When we think of songs of Moses, we think of deliverance out of Egypt. In this case, you and I, we sing the song of deliverance from the beast. Israel sang the song of deliverance from captivity, from slavery in Egypt. We sing of freedom from the slavery of the beast. That's our new song. That's who we are. Both, both tribes, if you will, experienced a final battle with slavery. They'd been delivered through the Red Sea. You and I have been delivered through the Red Sea also. When we were baptized, Paul says, that was baptism. That was like going through the Red Sea. That's us. We, though, we go through something like no other in human history. It's this final experience. It's this final deliverance that no one else can share. It's because we are all the redeemed of the earth. We are all allowed to see a finally redeemed because we got up and we opened the door and we let him in. We don't play by the beast rules. We're told that they've been not defiled with women, they've kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've been purchased from among the first fruits 
of God and the Lamb. The Greek says that they're virgins. Here's another reason why I know it's not literal. <laughs> I, had, I had a dear brother of mine who insisted that this had to be literal, and he told me that every day he woke up living to become one of the 144,000. And I said, how could you believe that it's a literal number? And he gave me the whole reasons why and everything. And I finally said, you're married. <laughs> he said, what? I goes, I, I, have, have you and your wife slept together? Yes. Well, literally, you can't be one. If you're going to take it literally, everybody who's been married or had sex once can't what? You can't literally be a member. Do you know why this can say this? It's because symbolically, symbolically, the worship that we are delivered from in Revelation 13 is described as adultery. Remember? Jezebel lays on the bed. She, she drinks from the cup of all fornication, right? All through the Bible, all through the Bible, idolatry has been described as what? As, as, as uh, adultery. Idolatry, adultery. That's why it has to be symbolic. These are the ones that follow the lamb wherever he goes. It's not that they don't have sex. It's that they don't commit idolatry. They've been purchased from among the first fruits. Laodicea becomes redeemed. Laodicea becomes purchased. And when we become purchased, we can start our journey to Mount Zion. I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul says. I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you chaste, virgin to Christ. Is he talking about sex there? No. He's talking about worshiping who? About worshiping Jesus and who else? And no one else. I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by its cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to who? He's not talking about sex, is he? Idolatry is described as adultery. It can't be used, it, it can be used to describe a spiritual condition and that's what Revelation 14 is. It's about the redeemed and their spiritual condition. Who they are in him. Who we've been called and what we've been called to do. These are the ones that are preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have a spiritual wedding coming and everybody's invited. Adulterers too? Yes. Everyone. So it's this spiritual meaning also for us Adventists who may, he may or may not know what I'm talking about, which is why I think that this, this uh, uh, group that you're seeing here, this 144,000, that they can't be sinless either. Their chasteness and their virginity has nothing to do with being sinless. It's about the idolatry itself. It's about the idolatry of the beast. See, because the spiritual meaning doesn't apply when you go back to literal Israel and you read the prophets, Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they're getting hauled into captivity because they're worshiping other gods, right? They're, they're having adulterous relationships with other gods. If you take it literally, then God can't come back to Israel and say, you're my virgin bride, which he does several times. Literally, the, the, uh, the allegory does not live out the literal part. Israel is way past the literal part, yet he'll call him his bride. In Hosea, Hosea is told literally to take who is a wife? Gomer. And what does she do for a living before Hosea gets a hold of her? She's a prostitute. He literally is told by God to take a prostitute for a wife. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry. It isn't about her, is it? It isn't about the literal prostitute. It's about who? It's about Israel. He wants to show them what it is like. The prophets asked to take a literal prostitute. Twice, by the way. 
Because after marrying him and having children, she goes back to being a prostitute. Hosea has to go back and get her again. Why? Because God said, this is what Israel did to me. So the rest of the chapter, in chapter two, there's this flagrant condemnation where he goes off talking about the condemnation of what idolatry means and this, this adulterous relationship that they have with other nations. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he says this, therefore I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak kindly to her, he says. I'll come about in that day, declares the Lord, that she will call me Ishi, which by the way means husband. She will call me husband and no longer call me Baal. So there he even mixes both metaphors, doesn't he? God as husband to adulterous Israel, to prostitute Israel, and then even calls out one of their gods. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness. Is Israel righteous right now? Is Gomer righteous right now? No. But when he speaks, when the husband speaks, he says, I don't care what you think she is, she's my virgin bride. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Then you will know the Lord. I can't, oops, sorry. And then he says this, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Gomer was long past being considered a literal virgin. But when God lured her into the wilderness, you have to remember that the wilderness for Israel and God is their honeymoon, isn't it? He sends Moses back to bring them out. It's the first time that they meet. Where do they get to have their honeymoon? In the wilderness. He's not just winking at the sin of Israel and just calling it something else. He actually is redeeming her and bringing her back to him as a virgin, a new virginity, if you will. Say it with me. She is born again. So as with the number, the virginity here isn't supposed to be taken literally. And this right here, and no lie was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. It's not that they don't lie as far as sin is concerned, but lying is only associated with the dragon and the beasts and the enemies of God and the woman. In in 2 Thessalonians uh, verse two, or chapter two, I mean, the final working of Satan will be one of lying wonders. Those who believe will be believing a lie. The church of the beasts lie to the world about God. They lie to the world about God, about how he supposedly feels about sinners. They, they lie to the world about God, about who belongs and who doesn't. They lie to the world about God, about what authority God will use to get you to worship him. The beast lies to the world about God, about everything. But God's final generation will not be deceived because their relationship will be real. It isn't just symbolic to open the door and to let him in. When he comes in, it's not him walking into the building. It's walking and coming in and actually being in us and not just with us. We are the sanctuary of the church of the Holy Spirit. Blameless. The remnant is blameless. Why? Because they're wearing his robe. Laodicea finally quits believing the lie, puts on the eye salve, sees their nakedness, takes his robe and puts it on. Never to be deceived again.
About what? About how the Father feels about you. About how Jesus feels about you. And about how Jesus feels about everybody else that the beast has locked out. When he comes, the reason that we will know that we belong to him is simply we will be like him. So, there's authentic and there's inauthentic. There are churches who are churches of the lamb that was slain, and there are churches who claim to be of the lamb that was slain, yet they've locked him out. We have the remnant described here because Laodicea can be redeemed. She will be redeemed. We just have to let him in. We're not here... And the, and the third angel, three angels message is not about being doctrinally pure. It's not all about just being Sabbath keepers. It's not all about believing what we believe the end time message is or can be or arguing about it. What it's about is being authentic versus inauthentic. I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm a, I'm a part of the 144,000 and I'm a sinner in need of grace. And I know that because I'm always wearing my eye staff and I'm always wearing my robe. We can wear both. It's been long enough that the church has told the lie that we can't have both. We can. Because there isn't a sin that I could commit that won't be forgiven. And there isn't an act of unrighteousness I commit that won't be covered by his righteousness. Hallelujah. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every day, every day, we can be that, we can be him, we can be remnant, we can be survivors. So welcome to the three angels message. It's good to be with you who identify as part of the 144,000. If you didn't identify before today, don't leave here without identifying yourself as one because we all are because of him. Thank you for holding on with me.